the Recovery Revolution will be podcast on the Since Right Now Addiction Recovery Network. This is the Unruffled Podcast, episode 185. This is a podcast about recovery through creativity. We live an intentional life. We thrive. I am Sandra Primo. And I'm Tammy Salas. And we are The Unruffled. Hello, Unruffled listeners. We are popping in at the top of the show to share with you several ways that you can help support the podcast. First, you can become a patron of the show by donating to our Patreon fundraising campaign. Please consider supporting our consistent effort in bringing you weekly content on creativity and recovery, all for less than the price of a latte. For just a dollar an episode, you will receive early access to each week's show as our way of saying thank you. If every listener did this, we would be over the moon. The link to our Patreon campaign is www.patreon.com backslash the unruffled podcast. And that's not it. You can share our show on social media or with your friends, and you can subscribe to the podcast and give us a rating on iTunes. All of this helps our little show immensely. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now onto the show. Hi, Sandra. Good morning. How are you, my friend? Okay. How are you? I'm doing all right. I went out into the world last night, which um, was different, (laughs) a little different. So um, I got to get dressed up and um, go to a dinner party that was out on a patio with some friends that we had in our friend pod and um, during COVID. And it just felt pretty decadent. I have to say, Sandra, it felt like I forgot forgot what it was like. Right, right. I did get to photograph a little, a time, a very small outdoor wedding this week at um, at my friend Spike Gillespie's tiny chapel. So it was all outside, and you know, I wore a mask the whole time. But yeah, I got to put on a little makeup, and it was yeah. I don't, I don't, I miss that. I'm gonna just say it. I miss that. Right. It feels like it's been. It felt just. It just felt good, and. It felt, um, it almost like when I got out of my car, I was walking and I didn't have a mask on and I had to walk back to my car because I saw some people with masks on. And I was like, for, for a little bit last night, from the time I was getting ready until the time I hit that parking lot and saw that couple that had masks on, I forgot that we were in a pandemic. Right. That's you know, I, I just kind of forgot. To forget. <laughs> I think it's healthy to have moments of forgetfulness. Yeah. And I was like, oh, and, um, this was like a big birthday party and, um, you know, there was lots of wine flowing and, um, I don't know, use that used to really trip me up and I have to really get my head around it before I would leave. And that's how I can just kind of tell at this phase of my development, I guess, um, with sobriety, I felt, okay. I didn't even really think, I didn't think about that. And when I saw the bottles, I was like, that's not for me. Um, mm-hmm. and that felt good. And I got to give up and give a little toast to my friend and, uh, She's a friend that helped me find God, actually, the concept of God um, early on in my recovery. Um, she used to get up at like 4.30 in the morning and send me these beautiful emails and try to help me figure out my concept of God because I was always struggling with it. And something she said one morning just kind of clicked. 
about it just being an energy? Could I just think it was just an energy? Could that get me through? Um, I think I was on step three at the time. And um, so she was really helpful in that. And she just is a very sweet, uh, can tell she touches a lot of people because a lot of people have a lot of nice things to say. So So it felt good. It felt uplifting and positive. And I kind of needed that um, over how I was feeling over the last week. So that was good. Oh, good. Good. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, yeah. When alcohol becomes neutral, when it's new, mm-hmm. your feelings are being like in close proximity, um, are neutral. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, that's gold. Goal <laughs> yeah. and gold. Yeah. It felt, it felt, uh, not charged and it didn't feel like I was keeping score. I was counting people's drinks or none of that happened. And I was kind of driving home, just kind of patting myself on the back going, I feel like that's good progress. Mm-hmm. It might come back and that could change to today. Um, sure. But for last night, it was good. And it felt, it felt good to be out in the world on a, such a beautiful kind of, it was a new moon last night and um, it was warm and, mm-hmm. you know, to wear something sleeveless and just kind of um, to feel light for a little bit felt good. It felt really good. Yes. Yes. We all need a little levity wherever we can get it. I think. Um, do you want to promote a few things before we get going with our episode? Do you have um, sure, promote? Sure, sure. Um, I will just promote the same things I always promote. Please, um, if you want to get on my newsletter, you can sign up at theunruffle.com. So scroll to the bottom and sign up there. I send out a newsletter every week. And it's usually like a little personal essay, really. I live writing them. Um, I've kind of poured all my writing into my newsletter. That's, that's where I write. Um, and, uh, also, um, still taking clients through the end of the year for change your story. So, um, there's still time to change your story before 2021. Yes. (laughs) Um, yeah, still time, still lots of time. Uh, (laughs) You don't have to close the book on this year and, (laughs) and, and, close the book on something that you wanted to maybe just address or, or initiate, um, before the year's over. So you can sign up for that and learn more about it on my website as well, theunruffle.com. Yeah. And I'm taking a couple of new clients. I have room for two for October for, um, know I'm trying to figure out how to talk about this a little more succinctly but it's I'm calling it the ray of light coaching and what I've learned and what's happening and I'm sure this has happened for you too Sandra it morphs and changes every person that I'm working with is different so some some people have more sobriety some people have a few days of sobriety um it just depends and that we are throwing creativity into the mix into some of the practices and uh, accountability projects and yeah, so that's available. If you want to book a discovery call with me, it's a 30 minute free discovery call. There's a link uh, on Instagram that you can do that. Or you can go to my website at tammysalis.com and get right on my calendar. It's like automatic. It gets put on my calendar and I see it and I'll send you a little note and um, we'll chat and see how we could work together. Um, yeah, that's that. Okay. Well, let's introduce our guest today. Um, yeah. Well, Such a good interview. She is an awesome interview. And you are an awesome um, interviewer as well, Sandra, because you kind of had the pre, um, what, did, what would I say? The, like you were ready for this when we, we were on a panel for the Creative High with Adriana Marchion for the film. She did an inspiration series and you were the moderator. We both were, but you, 
actually did the bulk of that work because I got kicked off the internet during yeah, that. Yeah, your internet went out. I was really bummed about that. But you did such a great job with the panelists and um, talking with them. And we really, um, well, all of the panelists were fantastic. But Erin, we reached out to Erin. I just loved how she talked about her recovery. Yeah, same, yeah. same. Um, so, right. So if you missed that in inspiration series, um, I'd love to introduce you to Erin Carr. Um, her debut memoir is called Strung Out, One Last Hit and Other Lies That Nearly Killed Me. Um, it was by uh, Park Row Books, released um, February 25th of this year. She's appeared on most, in, or it has imp- appeared on most anticipated lists from the Rumpus, Self, Apple Books, Books, Goodreads, Bitch Media, Alma, and others. Of the book, the New York Times writes, Carr's buoyant writing doesn't get mired in her dark subject. There is an honesty here that can only come from, to put it in the language of, of 12-step programs, a searching and fearless moral inventory. This is a story she needed to tell and the rest of the country needs to listen. Yeah, and she writes popular weekly, she writes a popular weekly advice column, Ask Aaron. Um, And her personal essays have appeared in Self, Marie Claire, Salon, HuffPost, Esquire, Cosmopolitan, and others. She lives in New York City. And you guys can find out all about Erin and her column on her website, and it's erincar.com, E-R-I-N-K-H-A-R. You can find her all over the place under Erin Carr on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And yeah, enjoy this episode. She's fantastic, and what a beautiful story and a beautiful book. Mm-hmm. Yes, y'all enjoy, Erin. Welcome to the show, Erin. Thank you. Good morning. Hi. Where are we talking to you from? Where are you at? I am in New York City. I'm in Manhattan in Greenwich Village. Oh wow! And what's and how is how are things how are things in New York City? Right. How are things? <laughs> I mean, actually, you know, it's funny. It feels. So somewhat normal now. I mean, it's, we're definitely not at, you know, population levels that we were at pre-COVID, but the city feels sort of lively again. And, you know, in, in my neighborhood, you know, restaurants are open, shops are open, people are out and about, and pretty much everyone's wearing a mask. That's the only difference is everyone's wearing a mask. And, you know, I think they've, they've opened indoor dining now, but I haven't done that yet. But I feel like, we're relatively, you know, we're feeling relatively normal. Of course, you know, there's a fear that things might roll back again, which they have in certain neighborhoods. Some restrictions have been put back in place, but I'm also sort of hopeful that, you know, we're, we're still moving forward and, and um, it's not at all, you know, in, in March and April, it was so devastating here and scary. And I have faith that we're not going to be in that position again because we know so much more now. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like overall I'm cautiously optimistic about how things are. Mm-hmm. I live in Austin, and we it feels the same when you go downtown or walk about. It kind of feels the same thing. People are distancing and wearing masks, but at least there's a little life has been brought back into the city. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I went to a a dinner last night and I got dressed up, which I haven't done 
in mm-hmm. the whole time. And it was at this outside restaurant, you know, dining place, but to actually get dressed, I, I got dressed like five times. I was like, Oh my God, should I wear this? Or I don't know, should I wear this? <laughs> hey, so many <laughs> options, right? You haven't seen you, my friends in a long time. <laughs> it was such a novelty to get dressed up for something and to put yeah. lipstick on and then have to put your mask on. I was like, Oh, I keep forgetting about the lipstick and the mask. I know <laughs> that's the, the one thing right now, as much as like, you know, I'm sort of like sick of zooms at the same time, at least with the zoom I can wear, if we're doing like a video call or, mm-hmm. you know, I've done, I've done some speaking engagements via zoom. I'm like, I can wear lipstick. I know <laughs> love <Yeah>. lipstick. <laughs> and you, and you rock a good red lipstick. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> we had a recent guest on that, that we talked about favorite red lipstick. So yes, uh, that's, you're right. We can do that on zoom. <laughs> that's allowed. That's allowed. Um, I was going to ask, we, so this is how we practice our small talk, Erin, at the beginning of the show. You know, we asked where they right. live and like the weather and whatnot. But before you got on, um, we saw that your bed was made. And um, and Sandra and I have been talking about, Sandra's been talking about it for a long time, but I'm just a newly adopted um, bed maker in the morning. And it feels so good. Why? Wh- wh- what is that for you? What is uh, Why do you make your bed? First thing I mean, I think it's, it's part of my mental health routine in mm-hmm. the most basic sort of way. I think that, you know, when quite literally, when my house is in order, I feel more in order internally. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that there's so much that is out of our control all the time that the things that we can control in our environment, when we do, we feel better. So, you know, it's the same thing for me with like, I... I'm the type of person that like, I have a really hard time leaving dirty dishes in the sink before I go to bed. This is something when I was like an active addiction, like I was not, I didn't care about because I was just, I was completely out of control emotionally. And, and I, I think that now I, you know, I like to wake up and not wake up to like a house that's a disaster. It's important for me. And, you know, even with having kids, like picking up after them, after they've gone to bed or whatever, it's been an important thing for me because I feel like I start the day with like some sort of control over my environment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I agree. You know, it was part of the instruction that I received when I first got sober Mm -hmm. and, and I was like, Oh, what? Yeah. And so I just did it, even though I'm not I don't always receive instructions well, <laughs> but I what? did it anyway. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I did it anyway. And I still do it. You Six years, six plus years later, I yeah. make my bed every morning and you're right. It's exactly that. It's, it's absolutely that. I'm in training. I'm in training for it. So um, I'm newly single, Erin. So mm-hmm. I have the bed to myself now before I never right. made it. Cause my husband was still in it. Um, right. For 20 some odd years. So now I've been, I've been trying it on for size. And like, when I make it first thing, my day seems to start off better. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. when I don't, it can get a little squirrely. <laughs> yeah. And it feels, it feel it does feel like, um, I think Anais Nin has a quote that I'm going to butcher, but something about like outer order creates inner calm. Yeah. I, I really believe that. You know, and I never, I don't think I really got that before. And maybe it doesn't for everyone. There's some people I know that think that like, it's insane that I um, keep things as tidy as I try to do. Mm-hmm. And, but just for me, it just makes me, I feel better when my house is in order, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> literally and figuratively. Yes, yeah. For sure. <laughs> for sure. 
Oh, well, well, thank you for going down that hole with us. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so yeah, we wanted to chat with you. You know, we've read your book and we were, had the pleasure of, um, speaking with you, um, through Adriana Marcioni's, um, creative high inspiration series earlier this summer. And so we were just, I loved how you answered the questions. I loved your whole demeanor and just your kind of vibe that you had going on. And I thought we just wanted to, we loved, we loved talking with you and we wanted to get to know you better. So I'm so glad to be here. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, so we normally start off talking to our guests about, um, their decision to quit drinking and yours was a, I don't know if it was necessarily, you would phrase it as a decision, but, um, you're, um, quitting heroin. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to, if you could, you could um, maybe share with our listeners what you feel comfortable sharing. Um, and try, I know you can't put it in a, maybe a, a sound bite, of course, but just and to you let, have written a whole entire book. Yeah. So we want them to <laughs> read the well. book, we want them to read the book, but if you could um, kind of frame um, how you came to um, recovery. Sure. So, I mean, you know, like for many people, my journey to recovery was not a one and done journey. Um, so often people have asked me what my bottom was and, you know, like for many people who are in recovery, like I had so many bottoms and, you know, arguably my bot, some of my bottoms weren't as bad as other people's. They were worse than some people's, you know, it's when I think about that idea of like a bottom, there are endless bottoms and there's the only bottom that we can't recover from is death. So I think that for a good five years, I had been hitting like bottom after bottom after bottom, and I still couldn't stop. Um, the initial thing that triggered my my successful recovery or sustained recovery was getting pregnant with my first son. I was using at the time, and I didn't want to go on methadone, which at the I don't know if it still is, but at the time was sort of like the the go to um, solution for for pregnant people who were using opiates, opioids. Um, I didn't want to go on methadone. I found a doctor who would detox me using buprenorphine over the course of seven days. So I did that and I made a commitment to stay off of drugs during my pregnancy. Of course, I wanted to stay off of drugs, but I just didn't have faith that I'd be able to because I hadn't been able to thus far. So throughout my pregnancy, I was like, okay, I was committed to not using during my pregnancy. I was in an unhappy marriage with somebody who was not a drug user, um, but we were in a very unhealthy, toxic (laughs) marriage. And I felt very ambivalent sort of about being a mother. Um, I didn't think I was going to be a very good mother. I doubted myself. I think other people doubted my ability to mother and to stay in any sort of like realm of stability to be able to, to parent. What happened for me was sort of this cliche sounding lightning bulb moment that when Atticus was born, you know, the the nurse cleaned him off and handed him to me. And I, when I first looked him in the eye, like eye to eye, I had this overwhelming feeling of like, oh, I know you. There was an immediate sort of connection, not just mother to child, but sort of soul to soul. And I knew at that moment that I instantly loved this little human being more than I had spent all these years hating myself. And it was just sort of that like sort of simple equation of I love you more than I hate myself. I knew I had to try to get this. And I think that 
somewhere inside, I believed for the first time that I'd be able to do it. And, you know, I have, I, that I never use drugs again. So it's been in February, it'll be 18 years um, of recovery, which is, was unimaginable to me before. I really did not believe that that was possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think, as you know, like I touched on in, in my book, it's, it's not that simple, right? I mean, that was sort of the catalyst for my recovery, but the sustaining recovery was about accessing the type of, the level of care that I needed to do so, especially in the area of mental health. And I was able to do that because of privilege, because of the privilege I had of having family support, community support, and most importantly, financial support to access that care, which so many people don't have. Right. And something that, you know, when I had my very abbreviated book tour and when I, when I speak to, to medical conferences or on panels or anything that I always really need to drive home is that it's very easy for people to look at my story and see it tied up with a bow because, you know, I had a child and then I sustained, I've sustained recovery since then. It is, it is because I had access to care and yes, I loved him so much. And that was the catalyst. And no, it doesn't mean that parents who have children and don't sustain any recovery can't sustain recovery. That doesn't mean that they love their children less than I love mine it means that I had access to care. And it's really, to me, it's that simple. Like there's no, you know, when we look at like the opioid crisis or just the addiction crisis in general, no matter what the substance is, I don't think that we have a chance of really bringing the, the sort of that, those statistics down without making access to long-term care available to people, regardless of their financial privilege. Absolutely. So that was my short answer. (laughs) Yeah. And you're right. So many, uh, so many important things you said, because yeah, it's not this or that it's this and that this, that you did have, you know, a nine month reprieve. Mm -hmm. And you had an instant connection and maybe a spiritual experience with your child. Mm -hmm. Um, as a result of having a baby and you had access to resources, mm-hmm. all of those things um, was sort of the magic bullet for you. Yeah. And, and for, and you started out the book, Aaron, with talking about, you know, the, the opening line was, um, you know, mom, did you ever do drugs from your mm-hmm. son who was 12 years old? Mm-hmm. And then um, I, I think about when you're saying that you had him and you saw this connection and then obviously you're, um, you go on to tell your story throughout the book and then you kind of bookend it at the end with this beautiful um, connection with your son again. And I, I remember when I was, had my son and when they laid him on me, Aaron, I didn't have that connection. Mm-hmm. And my drinking took off like a rocket mm-hmm. um, after I had him because I was so removed. So there's mm-hmm. so much to unpack and talk about here too. Of course, everybody's experience is different, but right. I think it's so beautiful and thank goodness. I, right. Like, thank goodness you yeah. had that experience. Uh, so I feel like I won the lottery with having that experience. Oh, I really yeah. do because I know because I've had so many friends that have struggled as whether they were new parents or later on in parenthood, like they were sober when they had a child and then they relapsed later on. I have been, I've, so many friends that have had a variety of experiences and, and look like 
paranoid, as you know, is not easy. It's not like it solved everything. It added right. all sorts of new stresses. Um, it was a catalyst for me, but again, like I had like the support there and, you know, and I also think some of it's luck, you yeah. know, I really do. I mean, I don't, you know, because I know people from all sorts of varieties of background that either finally got it or never did. And, you know, you could point to any number of factors, but I, I do think that there is some luck there too. Yeah. Well, and too, you know, I think by writing this book, you know, you're, you're doing your part to help break that stigma because, mm-hmm. um, you know, even for women who have access to resources, like I did after I had a baby, I still didn't, there was still something instilled in me that thought that I had to, you know, go at mothering for the first time all alone, Mm -hmm. like that I could not ask for help. Um, and that's the thing that kept me because that the, because of the stigma, um, you know, still very, very much alive Mm -hmm. 17, 18 years ago when I was pregnant with my first child, uh, I just didn't, I thought I was supposed to get it. Mm -hmm. I thought it was supposed to be easier than it was. And I did not ever, you know, tap into those resources that could have been available to me. Oh, absolutely. And there is so much shame around that too. I mean, you know, one of the biggest criticisms from readers, you know, like of my book, like not critics, but like strangers on the internet Mm -hmm. is that, you know, um, they're angry that I didn't have more consequences. They're angry that I didn't go to jail. Mm -hmm. They're angry that I had all this, you know, like basically that there's, there's a lot of um, criticism over the fact that like, I had a lot of privilege and a lot of people I had support and I had all these things and, and they're right. I did. And I hurt a lot of people and I behaved in selfish ways. And, and you know what, like the, the thing is, is that I had all of those things and it was still so hard to, to get it, to get recovery. And I had so much shame about the fact that I had all those resources and couldn't get it. You know, and I think that's so important for people to remember. We all carry shame about different things, right? Some of us have shame about the things that we have. Some of us have shame about the things that we don't have. Some of us have shame about, you know, things that we believe are fundamentally wrong with us based on these like sort of early belief systems that we create for ourselves or that are created for us by circumstance. The end result is the same. It's this, this cycle of shame that sort of keeps pushing us through these same behaviors over and over again, because that shame has, like I said, a belief system has created a belief system that we unconsciously act out again and again and again to reinforce that belief system. You know, and I'm not a doctor. This is just my Mm -hmm. own sort of theory based on years of like my uh, years of behaving in a certain way. And then years of looking back on it and going to a lot of therapy and being under the care of a psychiatrist and doing trauma therapy and all of that and unpacking it for myself and in speaking to other people who have had trauma and addiction and mental health issues and have had to unpack it. That's sort of like the common denominator that I see over and over again. 
Mm-hmm. I was talking, I'm sorry. No, I, was, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was talking to one of our former guests, um, Alison Moncrief, and she was, t- we were talking about shame. And mm-hmm. as she said, you know, shame wants connection, mm-hmm. um, but connection doesn't happen by itself, right? Mm-hmm. It has to happen with another person to kind of relieve mm-hmm. you of that shame. And I was just thinking about, um, as, as, as we're going through recovery, oh, I'm five and a half years ish, um, mm-hmm. um, sober from alcohol. And I think it's in- so interesting to me, the unpacking that keeps happening and the undoing that oh, keeps yeah. happening and the, the onion getting peeled more and more. And I, I can know it. I can hear it. I can hear it in the rooms. I can um, hear it from other people and women that mm-hmm. we talk to. And it's, it's still surprising to me how much is there and how much that Mm -hmm. shame and where it came from. And, you know, when we're younger, wherever that is. And I keep thinking like, oh, I got this. So I I let it come to the surface. I've released it. Um, Oh, good. It's gone. Right. (laughs) And and it's not, it's like, this fixed. I'm going to put that in a box and put that away. Um, But our, you know, our friend um, Paula um, founded Shame Booth. Have you ever heard of Shame Booth, Erin? I haven't. I haven't. It's pretty magical, right, Sandra? Yeah, it, it is because it's like, um, I mean, literally what it is, is you walk into an old phone booth and you speak mm-hmm. your shame into a, into a phone mm-hmm. that's not, um, that's only connected to a record, a recorder actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's something about the ritual of doing it, you know, like with many rituals that we do right? Uh, to kind of, um, shed these things that we, we want to shed and, um, and it, yeah, it is a pretty powerful experience and however you do, you know, whether you're you write things in journals and you burn them or you, you know, when you just keep doing it and you just keep burning them, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's a process. It's like a release. Oh, yeah. I mean, and it's, it's, listen, like I said, like I, in February, it'll be 18 years of recovery for me. I'm still processing this stuff. And honestly, like, I think, you know, while I don't carry the shame that I carried before, b- but that's really only like the last 10 years, I, I still have times where my childhood trauma comes up where I act out in some sort of way. Like when I say act out, it's usually like verbally, (laughs) you know, where I I have like a reaction or something comes up for me because I think that, you know, trauma is something and and trauma can come from shame as well. Not just a traumatic incident. I think that with trauma, it's something that we process for entire lives, which sounds daunting, but it's not. It's really like the way I look at it is like, it takes the pressure off of having to have it all figured out today or tomorrow or 10 years from now, that it's okay that we are continually working on those same, those same issues and, and the same lessons, because I think that's part of it too. You know, if we look at it from sort of like a philosophical or like spiritual level, part of our journey, for lack of a better word, as a human being is to process this stuff, process the conditions of being human during this lifetime, right? So <clears throat> it's not something that that ends at any one point. It's a continual thing. Like for me, it's like the, the continual lessons of patience, acceptance, and giving up control. Those are like my big three that I'm constantly having to work on again and again and again. And 
where there was a time where I would be so judgmental and hard on myself about it. I've, you know, and I still struggle with that, like the expectations I have on myself to be okay all the time. Um, I'm much better now at allowing myself for not having perfected any of it. Mm-hmm. Like that that's okay. Right. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about, um, you, you, you sort of open your book about a story about how you start stealing pills basically mm-hmm. at, at age of, at the age of eight. And it's like in response to your, um, anxiety, basically, mm-hmm. we have a lot of women, um, that we've had on the podcast that we talk to daily that, that deal with anxiety. We also have a lot of moms that have, um, daughters mm-hmm. that experience anxiety. And I was wondering if you could talk about what that feels like in an eight-year-old body. You mean specifically like an eight-year-old female? Yeah. 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 Like what, how do you, how did, how did that feel as a, as a, you know, you were still a child. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you could talk about how that showed up. Sure. So, I mean, obviously, you know, and this is, it's not a big spoiler because it comes, you know, I've written about it elsewhere. So, you know, one of the, one of sort of like my core issues is this childhood trauma of being sexually abused. And I think that for young women, even if they haven't been sexually abused, as you start to grow and, and, and transition from being a child into a tween and then into adolescence, we are constantly given two conflicting messages, right? One is that all of our value is intrinsically in our, our sexuality. And the, the sort of conflicting message is that we should be ashamed of it. And I think that having been sexually abused, that was really amplified for me. So I had this sort of, and I, I couldn't articulate this at eight years old, right? Sure, this is like sure, me looking yeah. back and unpacking sort of right. the behaviors that I did, the sort of like survival skills that I developed. I realized early on that if I presented myself as being pretty and polite and a good girl, that that gave me currency to get things that I wanted because those things that I wanted, even though like they were skewed and sometimes they were like praise or monetary items, I equated those with being validated that I was lovable, validated that I was like a worthy human being. So I think that there was, there was that dynamic already set in motion. I didn't understand that then. I felt like I had this sort of, from a very early age, because I was hiding that sexual abuse and had so much shame about it, that then in turn turned into like feelings that I wanted to harm myself, which I had shame about feeling like those feelings, right? Mm -hmm. Which created panic attacks. And I was so afraid that if somebody knew that I was anxious, they would get to the other stuff. So all of it became about hiding that, you know, quelling that, suppressing that. And the first time that I stole a pill, I was having a panic attack and I saw an expired bottle of Darvacet. I didn't know what it was. It was in our medicine cabinet. It was from like, it was my grandmother's. She probably gave it to my mom because my mom had migraines, but I don't think my mom ever took one. It had just been sitting there for a really long time. All I knew is that it said may cause drowsiness. 
and it had a picture of like a man with bubbles around his head. And that's what I wanted. I wanted drowsiness. I wanted something to get my mind to shut down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And when I took that first pill, I felt that disconnection. And that felt good to me because feeling connected to the world and feeling connected to my feelings and feeling connected to other human beings felt painful and scary and like I couldn't control it, you know, and that really was sort of the origins of like my drug seeking behavior. It was like, I was not, my story was not one of like, oh, I tried something that was offered to me out of peer pressure or like at a high school party. And then, and then, you know, like I, it it clicked something inside of me. My addiction was there before I took the first drug. Mm -hmm. That was just a vehicle to, to, um, to where I thought I needed to be. And that situation that you were in, I think when you were 13, right? Mm-hmm. The first the first time um, you took heroin. It, it, thinking of you as such a young girl, right? Just thinking mm-hmm. 13 years old. And were you, that anxiety, was that rising up for you that day too? Oh yeah. I mean, I think that as I entered adolescence, because of like hormones and just adolescence, mm-hmm. you know, right. it, it's like a perfect storm, especially for young female identifying people. It's a very, you know, all of that stuff that I talked about, like sort of that, that, that your value is pay, placed in like how in your sex appeal, but you should be ashamed of your body at the same time. I feel like that really intensifies as you start to become a young woman mm-hmm. because I, you know, I was tall. I had never been particularly tall. And then between 12 and 13, I grew, I became taller. So I looked a little bit older and I recognized sort of the currency in that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, I think that definitely all of that underlying anxiety and, and the feelings I had about myself and the shame amplified as I entered adolescence. And yeah, that, that was, that was a driving force for me. Yeah. The, the, um, you also had sex. Yes. That day. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the combination of both of those, yeah, really struck me as being a 13 year old Mm -hmm. girl. You took me right back to eighth grade and you you being a cheerleader, correct. And volleyball and, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. um, riding horses. And, and I was just thinking like, um, it's such a mature thing to have sex, right? Right. It can really do a number on your head. Mm -hmm. And so you have that going on. Plus you've just used heroin for the first time and you like that feeling. Right. I mean, and, um, and if that is the medicine, right. If that is the medicine to, um, feel a little better, soften those anxiety edges, of course, you're going to do it again. Right. I mean, right. Of course. And then, and then of course the, an addiction can grow right in your midbrain and that's where that's mm-hmm. all going to happen. Um, but there's, there's a lot of men in your life in the book too. Mm-hmm. And can you talk a little bit about that and what you think maybe that was about or how you, how you navigate yeah. that? I mean, I think it was that, you know, there were two things happening. Number one, it was going back to that sort of like currency that like, Mm -hmm. if somebody validated me because they found me sexually attractive or they pursued me romantically, it, it, it was like proving, proving that I was lovable, that I wasn't some monster because I really believed that I was a monster inside and that I had Mm -hmm. somehow tricked everyone into seeing something else. Even physically, I felt so unattractive and, and ugly and unwanted and unlovable that I 
thought that I had like I was some sort of witch that had like created a you know like a glamour or something some kind of spell I did I really (laughs) thought like and then then simultaneously if somebody found me attractive it made me distrust them because I didn't believe that I was attractive and then you couple that with the second that I became emotionally intimate with somebody I had to do something to sabotage it And this is not like, these are not things that I was always conscious of at the time, right? Some degree, right? To some degree I was, but I realized very early on that if I rejected people on some level, then they would want me more. So I, I really, I think the part of the reason that I went like through so many different relationships is because the second that like there was any sort of real emotional intimacy there, I was moving on. I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't handle it. That was terrifying to me. And when I was in, you know, committed relationships, I, you know, was off, you know, 99% of the time, not faithful to that person mm-hmm. and had to have something, whether it was an intimate relationship with somebody else or drugs. And that was my secret. I always had to have something that was like a buffer between me and that other person. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that unconscious, subconsciously there was like, then they couldn't really hurt me because I had already hurt them, <laughs> which right. is so, you know, I understand like this is like juvenile and so destructive and toxic and all of those things, but it was survival for me then. Mm. That, that, that point right there um, leads into this question. Cause I say this often, um, that as destructive as alcohol was for me, I think that it kept me alive. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, many, many occasions. I love the quote by, um, Jidu, um, Krishna Mert, that it is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd love it if you could talk a little more about that, that concept of, of substance abuse for means of survival, because Mm -hmm. I think that people that don't experience addiction do not get it. They don't. And I I think I say something like that in the introduction that heroin kept me from killing myself. And it did. Mm -hmm. I would have killed, I would, I mean, I I would have attempted more suicide attempts. I would have had more suicide attempts had I not had heroin a hundred percent. Um, it numbed me enough that I could stay here because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be here. I didn't want to be in this body. I didn't want to be in my mind. I didn't want to be on this planet. It was so excruciating so much of the time. And, you know, I certainly, and exhausting because I was certainly like working overtime to make sure that I didn't show that to anybody. Mm. So I think that, you know, it's very difficult for people who haven't struggled with addiction to understand, but I'd argue that we don't just use substances to survive as survival mechanisms, right? We use all sorts of behaviors that aren't necessarily quote unquote good for us to survive. Whether it's how we treat other people, there's people who go on social media and leave nasty comments for other people, you know, I had a situation recently where there's a person who's like distant family member through marriage who left, had a post, you know, in support of Biden and Harris and 
they don't agree with that and left a comment on my Instagram post saying that, saying, you know, first saying like, you know, I guess you're ready for socialism. And then said, I read your book. Of course, an enabled spoiled heroin addict would want that. Mm. And I thought like, you know, at first, like it, it irritates me when anybody like takes something and then like immediately goes to like a low blow. But I understand like this is somebody who has some other sort of pain and their way of assuring themselves that they're okay is by putting somebody else down. Right. Because like, no, hurt- that's the sick one, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> right. Cause hurt people hurt, right? Yeah, that's- they do. Yeah, they do. And, you know, I don't, whereas like before, like something like that may have, I may have taken it to heart, you know, I, the way that I feel about my past now and why I think it's so important to talk about these things openly is that, you know, I carried shame about the things that I did for so freaking long. Sorry. Can I say that? So long long that, you know, I'm not carrying it anymore. So if somebody else wants to feel ashamed about what I did 30 years ago, go for it. Like, I mean, that says a lot more about their character than it does mine. You know, I don't think that we are defined by our mistakes. I think that we are defined by what we learn from our mistakes and how we move forward. And that is what builds character. The character isn't built in the initial making of the mistake or making Mm -hmm. of the, you know, the initial fumble. It's about what comes after that, you know, and I don't think that there, you know, I don't think that there is, there's a time frame to that necessarily. You know, I think that, you know, in terms of sort of like, you know, I don't want to use the word redemption, but like in terms of sort of turning your life around, you know, there is no expiration date on when you can begin to do that. You know, of course, there's always going to be, Thank goodness, yeah. you know, the wreckage of our past. And that's something that we have to deal with, right? That, that that's our, ours to deal with. But I think that once we've dealt with it, I don't need somebody to come back and like try and make me feel bad about it when mm-hmm. I've already worked through and taken steps to make amends on a daily living basis. Mm-hmm. And not everyone, things. not everyone accepts that invitation, that life no. invitation. Uh-uh. Yeah. People can be, I mean, I can't imagine getting those type of comments, Aaron, that like hurt my heart, <laughs> you know? Oh, I then- mean, you, that's like the tip of the iceberg. I mean, <laughs> I've had people say that I should have, you know, like I was a waste of life. I should have died, like all that kind of stuff. And like, like, oh. you know, again, like, that's like my point, like somebody that's making comments like that on the internet, that's their drug, mm-hmm. you know, right. that's what they're using to fix the part that feels broken in them. Right. Well, that take. I mean... <laughs> We, ha- we have a lot of um, people also that, you know, relapse and, mm-hmm. uh, and some people don't like that word, whatever word you want to use, but coming again and again and learning those lessons, like you just said, I mean, it was really beautiful what you just said, because um, how else are you going to learn? How else are you going to grow? And mm-hmm. I hope that in the process that, that no one dies. Um, Absolutely. But, but you are going to glean something from that experience. And that, that is going to help you mm-hmm. um, grow into your recovery, hopefully. Absolutely. And I think like that is something that like I speak about a lot when I speak about addiction, you know, it doesn't, not everybody, you don't have to relapse to get recovery, but I know very few people who have gotten recovery without relapsing. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I 
felt when I was in early recovery in 12-step programs that I felt so much judgment within 12-step programs about relapsing. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not saying that that's across the board or that it's that way today. It was just my experience then. And I think that we really need to look at that because even as people in recovery, we can be judgmental about other people's recovery <clears throat> and it's not our place. For sure. You know, I didn't have the same attitude towards harm reduction in, in a general way I did, but I didn't necessarily, I did not see that, you know, medicated assisted treatment like via something like, um, methadone was the same as like, you know, complete abstinent recovery. I don't feel that way today. Our number one job is to keep people alive. Mm-hmm. Once they're alive, then they, you know, they're not going to get recovery if they're dead. So right. the number one thing is keeping people alive. And the other thing that I say to people, you know, especially if it's somebody I know and they've relapsed, I know people who have relapsed after having a lot of time and then have a very hard time getting back. And I think that there sometimes is an idea perpetuated by other people in recovery that you have, you know, you're okay, you're starting over at day one and that's it. And like, you know, you're starting all over again. And I don't really think that that's true. Yes, you may be counting days again, if that's what you do, but you haven't erased everything that you learned in recovery before. Mm -hmm. All of that work was still put in. If you put in five, 10, 15, 15 years into your recovery, that is not all completely lost because you relapsed for a couple of months. And I think that that's like a dangerous thing. And I know that's something that would happen to me. And I was like, well, I already relapsed. So screw it. Right. The shame of that just keeps people out. Yeah. 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 Number counting. We were talking about this with some of our listeners and on a zoom call and you know what the number day counting means for some people. Mm-hmm. And I I'm with you, Aaron. I don't believe that you lose any of the time that you have, mm-hmm. have spent clean or sober and, um, it's all part of the journey. Right. Um, but that is not to say, um, I, I'm a little bit of a, um, a numbers person. Mm-hmm. I count numbers. That's my anxiety. I count numbers right? and I count words letters and words. Like when people say 11 letter words, I did this my whole life and I didn't realize that that was my anxiety. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm a counter and right. I don't, I don't count as much as I used to, but when I do start counting, it's an indicator now for me, instead of being shamed, shame, ashamed about it, I feel like, Oh shit. So that means something's coming up. That's a compass. It's pointing me. Why am I counting all the addresses? Why right. am I counting all the license plates? Why am I counting when people are speaking? Oh, that's right. Something's coming up. So I need to address that. But I think that numbers and days and accumulating days, which I know is different, but it is kind of a thing for me, but it doesn't speak to everyone. It can feel no. shameful as no. well. And I also, you know, I think too, I mean, I think like I, like, like I said, when I first was in early recovery, I really had this idea that like, it was either a hundred percent abstinence or there was no recovery. And I don't believe that now my recovery doesn't have to look like you know, Jane Doe's recovery walking down the street. If her recovery is methadone maintenance, that's her recovery. That's not my recovery. If she's a functioning person and she's happier and she's healing and she's on her way to her, on her journey, that's not none of my business. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I just don't, I just don't have such rigid thinking that I had before Mm -hmm. because it was rigid thinking that had my sort of perfectionism and fear of failure on such like hypervigilance that anything that was not perfect meant that I couldn't do any of it. And when I kind of let go of it, then I was 
Like it was sort of like letting go of that sort of idea of perfect recovery that I was finally able to do recovery. <laughs> right, right. Because like going back to what you said, that binary thinking, mm-hmm. yeah. And if somebody has one slip, then if they're really stuck in that rigidity, that can just keep them out and mm-hmm. and straight to, you know, straight to death even. Right. So. Right. Well, perfectionism and control. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a lot of that. That's very familiar to me, Erin. Your story was very familiar in that way. Your anxiety, Mm -hmm. the need to control order, tidiness, like that's all very much um, present for me. And I was thinking um, when about control and like, were you early on in the, you said you were in the rooms, 12 step. Do you still do 12 step or do you, are you? I do not. But a hundred percent, like the foundation of my recovery is in 12 steps. Mm -hmm. I have still like a huge number of like sort of my community and my friends are in 12 step programs. I just, I was at a point where there was a certain level of drama in the 12 step rooms that I was in that Mm -hmm. was making it, was amplifying my anxiety about Mm -hmm. sustaining recovery. So when I stopped going to meetings and started focusing on mental health and, and developed a real sort of like, I I didn't develop a spiritual practice, but started really seeking a spiritual practice for myself. Mm -hmm. I found that that, that worked better for me than the anxiety of being in the rooms, you know, and that's not, I'm not like an anti 12 stepper in any way, shape or form. I think that it works beautifully for a lot of people. And I know that it doesn't work for some people and that's fine. And that, that was my problem then too. I thought like, if I didn't do it, the 12 step way that mm-hmm. I wasn't going to be able to do it. That said, there are so many of the tenants of 12 step programs that I think are true for any that, that become true of people's sort of like daily some version of it becomes true for people's daily practice of like being in recovery, but it just might look a little different, right? It might, you might call it something different, but I think sort of these basic tenets of being of service and, uh, you know, taking our own moral inventory and not other people's and, and, and mm-hmm. learning to make amends when we make missteps, like all of those sorts of basic tenants and, and like, and giving up the control, not believing that we're the one in charge of everything. Those sorts of basic tenants exist for most people who are in sustained recovery, mm-hmm. even if they're not in a 12 step program. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Right. And service like, like, you know, like you mm-hmm. did writing this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And sharing your story for sure. I, thank you for sharing that because it is hard. It's, it's, um, I have like this interesting relationship with the rooms. Um, and, I kind of ebb and flow. And Mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, that just depends on my um, emotional sobriety just by itself. Like, and sometimes that's why I go to those rooms. And when it's not emotionally sober in a room or if there is drama, of course, that's going to spill out and all onto me. (laughs) And um, sometimes it's a teacher and sometimes I can accept it that way. And, you know, I'll Mm -hmm. have to do work with my sponsor around it. And it points out some things like, oh, you want to control where so-and-so sits. That's not... (laughs) That's not a good idea, Tammy. Right. You know, right. you want to control the, you can't, that's, so these are good things to point out and to have, to be able to, how I feel my time in the rooms are, is that I get to practice like how to be human mm-hmm. and how to go out into the world and put those things um, to use. But like, Sandra, what's the phrase that your friend says at the end of a meeting sometimes? Oh, let's see if this shit works at, at home. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> so right. I, I love that. <laughs> it's where I get to practice. And, um, and yeah, and it's, and it's not, um, it's not for everyone and me being a perfectionist too. I'm looking at that as well. And you even saying that, like, sometimes I want to get the gold star. Yeah. No gold stars in AA. There's just, right. thank God. Right. And there was like such a fear then that if I didn't do exactly the way it was sort of, you know, to- told to me to do in 12 step programs that I was doomed. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that's that. I just don't think that that's true. And I think that, you know, I guess the biggest sort of like overarching lesson from that is like, I learned that there's no one size fits all yeah. um, formula for recovery. And it looks mm-hmm. different for everyone, depending on their background and their, their mental health issues and their physical health issues. I mean, there's so many, there's so many intersections there that, that we have to, to acknowledge. And, and it's okay. My recovery is not threatened because because yours doesn't look the same as mine, because you do Mm -hmm. things differently than me, you know? Right. And I think, you know, how we add to that narrative is to keep telling our individual stories out Mm -hmm. loud, recovering out loud. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. And I think that's, you know, I, I have to remind myself because there's times when like, you know, when some comment will be made or something about the book. And I just feel like, uh, maybe I shouldn't have even written it. Like, you know, mm-hmm. I just, just sort of like whatever passing thought I have. And I, and I, you know, I have to remember like, Hey, it's not me anymore. That book isn't me. It's like, it's its own entity. And, you know, the, my impetus for writing the book was, you know, of course, you know, as a writer, like part of what satisfies me is expression through the written word. But I know that I feel better when I feel like I am making people feel less alone, making people feel connected. And as somebody who spent many, many years doing everything to disconnect, sort of the opposite of that that I do now is wanting to connect. It's why I became a writer was because I wanted to connect with people. You know, I think, um, you know, this sort of transitioning into sort of like creativity talk. But like, I think that for me, and I think for a lot of people, what moves us about art is when we see, hear, feel the human experience reflected back at us. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what has driven me towards being a writer is that, you know, I have that indescribable feeling when I see a film or listen to a song or view a piece of art that, that taps into that sort of sometimes unquantifiable um, recognition of the experience of being human, Mm -hmm. that I also want to be able to communicate that to people. Well, you do a really good job of it, Erin. Thank Um, you. I was thinking there's a quote um, about, you know, I can't remember who said it, but something about um, share from the scar, not the wound. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious, Mm -hmm. I I know we didn't ask you this at the top of the show, but how old are you now? And how old were you when you, when you quit um, drugs? Sure. So I'm 46 now and I was, I just turned 29. I was 28 to like slash 29 when I, um, when I stopped using. So, you know, I have time away. I mean, Mm -hmm that's part of the reason I was able to write the book, right? So when you say that, like, right from the scar, not the wound, I wouldn't have been able to write this book then. You know, I think that I, you, you need, you need the time to scar and you need the time to then take those lessons to be able to look back at the wound, right? Yeah. <laughs> this, this extended metaphor, like you really do, you, you know, 
you can't really face that wound until you have until it is healed and there's a scar there. Well, that, and that was, yeah, you, thank you. You asked my question. <laughs> you, you answered <laughs> what I was going to ask you. So then, um, it seems like you had so many vivid details in the book, mm-hmm. which I really totally loved because it transported me and it took me back, but you write about like the smell of Gina Tay. Mm-hmm. You, you, you write I about can totally smell Gina Tay. Totally. Right <laughs> that sense memory. And then, and then yeah. you talked about watching TJ hooker episodes with your grandma and, and the experience of being with your grandma. I really love too. And so I was just curious, were you a journal writer as a young girl? Did you jot down these things or did you really have sense memories that you could recall? Sense memory is I'm, I have a very good memory in general and sense memory is huge for me. I, anytime I'm writing anything memoir based, whether it's a personal essay or this book, I always will sit and close my eyes and try and tap into a sense memory of that moment. Mm -hmm. It's for me, like the easiest way to like get back into the facts of what happened. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So yes, for sure. I have that sense memory like locked in, but I also kept journals from a very, from like about the age of seven, my entire, and then for many years, like in the nineties, I wrote letters back and forth and recorded audio tapes with my, with a few of my friends, but one of my best friends. And when I went to write the book, she, we had both kept each other's letters. She sent me like all the letters and audio tapes. Aww. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Which what a wealth. I of- know. And in my letters and in my journals, I wrote like scenes where, you know, it would be like, you know, and then he said, and I'd have like quotation marks of what that person <laughs> said. So when I went to go recreate dialogue, it was invaluable because I had it right there. I had right. primary sources and granted, you know, any letter that I wrote or journal that I wrote was still through my lens. So mm-hmm. our lens is never going to be like a hundred percent perfect, you know, objective reflection of the situation, but this uh, memoir is based on my lens. <laughs> so, sure. but I felt confident that I was accurate in depicting what I felt and observed in that at, the at time. those times. Yeah. And then and the other thing is I was able to, you know, I'm still, other than people that who have passed away, I was able to speak to ex-boyfriends and friends. I'm in contact with most people who've been in my life, um, at least the major players. <laughs> so I was able to ask people questions if I, if anything was unclear to me, to ask if that's how they remembered it, you know, um, and I know that like, that's come up a lot that like, you know, <laughs> somebody in a, like a, like, like a comment about the book was like, there's no way as a drug addict, she could remember all that. And that's not true. I mean, even without the, the journals and everything, I have a very good memory, despite all of the drugs that I did. You know, I'm not, I used to joke that like, I took, so I took all these drugs to try and like erase memory and the memories, like they have persisted <laughs> despite my best efforts. Yeah. And I've, yeah, I, I have a horrible memory. So Sandra knows. I do too, but, but I, but I share your experience of sense memories too. And I, I, I coach women and I'm no writing coach, but I often work with women who are working on writing projects. And that is exactly the exercise that I have them do is to close their eyes. Like, what do you smell? What do you taste? What do you, what do you hear? What do you just tap into all of the senses and something will come up all the time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. I mean, I think that's so big 
you know, it's big for a lot of people who are tapping into like trauma therapy too, because so often like trauma is triggered by a sense memory, like a smell or a sound or a sight. So I think that, or, or the way somebody touches us, I mean, there's all those sorts of sense memories and I'm very aware of them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, you know, and the fortunate part of that is it was a really useful tool for being able to go back into moments that I don't always like keep at the forefront of my memory because I don't enjoy re-experiencing them because they're traumatic on a regular yeah. basis. Yeah. <laughs> well, so so I know perhaps you've been writing this book your whole life would be the answer, but how how long? When did you start writing it? Like really got serious and said, "I'm going to put this down and put it all together." So when I sort of switched careers and began writing, which was about ten years ago, um, I started writing personal essays. I started my advice column. And like the thing that I began to notice is that the more I opened up about my past in both the advice column and in my personal essays, the, the greater response I had from people. And I, I also noticed that like as a sort of selfish side benefit, I, it really helped alleviate any sort of residual shame I had about things. Mm. You know, I used to joke that like, I could run for political office because I have already put all of my skeletons in the closet out there. <laughs> I don't have anything left to hide because they've been put out there. But, um, you know, that, so that, so I had that, you know, idea of like sort of I was moving towards writing more and more about my past. Mm-hmm. And I went back to school to finish my degree because I'd never finished college. And I had a writing professor say to me, you know, I think you have a memoir in you. And that was sort of like where the first sort of spark came from. And then I guess in about 2015, 2016 is when I really thought, okay, this is something I want to try to do. In the middle of all that, I was attempting to have another child and went through like a bunch of miscarriages and then like a really devastating second trimester loss and then Mm. got pregnant again and had a baby who was premature. (laughs) I mean, but he's fine now. And, you know, we had, there was a series of sort of life events happening. Mm. So I had sort of, I was working on portions of it, but like, you know, as it fit into my life and I had, um, my agents who are now my agents contact me based on a piece of flash fiction that I had written that they read and they asked what I was working on. And I said, Oh, I'm working on this memoir. Um, you know, I've been working on a proposal because my idea was I would write a proposal and then try to get an agent and da da da. And they said, well, you know, do you have sample chapters? And I said, yes, I had um, a couple of sample chapters. So I sent them to them and then we met and I signed with them. Hmm. We put together a proposal. So I hadn't written the book yet. I had, you know, sections written, but it was not a whole book. So we put a proposal together that really helped me sort of clarify not just the greater narrative arc, but sort of the narrative arc within each chapter. And we went out on submission and then the book ended up going to auction and, and um, you know, the rest is history as they say. So <laughs> when I signed my book deal, I wrote the first draft in three and a half months, which is mm. really, really fast. That That said, (laughs) I had, as I said, I had been writing sections of it, even though they're not exactly how they appear in the book. I had been working on sections of it for a long time. And I had this, my proposal was very, very thorough. And like, you know, my chapter breakdowns, rather than just being a synopsis, were really read like mini chapters. So you really got what the narrative arc was. So I had a map 
for how to mm-hmm. do it. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't like I was unclear on what was going to happen, <laughs> you know? So, right. so it, I wrote that first draft very quickly, even for a memoir, that's very fast because publishing is generally really slow. Um, wrote that in three and a half months. And then we had another few months. Um, I did, you know, my first big edit and then line edits, copy edits, and then it went to, you know, to advanced copies. So I think from my first draft to when the final draft was accepted by my publisher was probably eight months. <laughs> it was re- seven wow. months. It was really fast. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Do you, okay. I'm curious. Cause I'm always curious how people work. Um, so when you're writing, Aaron, obviously you're doing research, you have the journals out. I can see it all around you right now. I can see your audio <laughs> tapes. You listen to your cassette tapes um, and some mixtapes maybe you found too. And then <laughs> Are you in your bedroom? Are you in at the kitchen table? Do you go to cafes? Like, what is your process for writing? Well, I'm just talking pre-COVID. <laughs> right. Okay. That's so, right. So, yeah. then, you know, the other thing that had happened um, is that right after I had my second child, we had a five alarm fire in our building. Oh. And we were displaced for two years while they renovated. Mm. <laughs> so oh I, we were in temporary housing where I didn't have like any extra room. I had this baby. I wrote mostly for my bedroom. I also had a co-working space at the time. So I would go to the co-working space when I had childcare and then I would write from my bedroom, like literally from my bed. I didn't even have a desk. Mm, <laughs> so, um, wow. you know, in, in like sort of like a non COVID world, my, my writing life now would without, COVID would be going to the co-working space part of the time and then writing from my desk part of the time. Wow. I think that just shows that this book had to be born. Like you had to write this book. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely felt like I had, I, this book had to come out before I moved on to the Mm -hmm. next thing. Yeah. Um, we could keep talking to you for another hour, Erin, but we're not going to (laughs) take up your time. Um, but I, I know we haven't, I will mention it at the top of the show, but just in case somebody tunes in or skips the beginning of the show, your book is called strung out one last hit and other lies that nearly killed me. Yes. And, um, I see that Stephanie land here gave, put a quote on the cover of your book. Do, mm-hmm. Um, I know Stephanie's work from, um, mama load magazine, um, which uh-huh. is based out of Missoula. Yeah. And, um, I used to write for mama load as well. And I read her memoir made and I loved it. And what a, what a hardworking woman that, that she is. Absolutely. I yeah. adore Stephanie. Yeah. Um, so this is the part of the show where we um, share some toolbox items for our listeners. They can either be creative related or have be sobriety related. Um, so what do you have in your unruffled toolbox, Erin? What you got for us? So I thought about this and, and they really apply to both sobriety, mental wellness, and Um, creativity. Um, The first thing that came to mind, which is something that I found myself needing to do when the pandemic first (laughs) set in this year, is that when I put myself into the role of being a student, I immediately, it immediately sort of opens up my mind, makes me think, makes me want things, makes me excited. And, And what I mean by that is that you know, a lot of times when I feel stuck or immobilized, that's sort of like a danger zone for me. And, and not, not with sobriety anymore. That's not where my mind goes, but in terms of depression, like falling into depression. So when I feel stuck, if I put myself in the, the role of student, and that could mean like 
teaching myself something that I don't know how to do, like during the pandemic, like I started to learn how to embroider. I still can't really embroider, but I started learning how to embroider, learning how to play a song on the guitar, enrolling in a writing workshop or another creative workshop, anything that like takes me out of like thinking I have to know anything and that I'm just learning, it shifts things for me both sort of spiritually and creatively. Um, and I, I really need that shift sometimes to get unstuck. And I, I don't know, I don't even know at what point I sort of discovered this, but I, I, it really, really works. Like, I don't think I'll ever stop taking writing workshops because they help me so much sort of like look at things differently, open up my mind in a different way. You know, they have, and there's so many things that we can do online now, you know, like programs like masterclass or even just YouTube videos. I mean, there's a lot of different things that we can learn. It doesn't have to be something related to whatever your creative outlet is. It could be like a makeup tutorial. I mean, cooking, whatever it is, I think that it helps us. I think that's why so many people during quarantine got into like making sourdough, their own sourdough starter and bread because mm -hmm. they were focused on learning something and learning something keeps your brain active in a way that, that um, we need. Mm, I love that. It just, that's like my favorite almost mantra is stay curious, stay mm -hmm. curious, stay mm -hmm. curious. I love that. Absolutely. Because otherwise we, we can become stagnant and stagnant. A stagnant state is not good, especially for people who have, um, who are in recovery, you know? Nope. Not good. Yeah. That is, yeah. That will lead to my demise every time. Yeah. I, I always say I'm going to be a forever student. Like I do. Love yeah. It. I do love it. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's how that I really do think it's how we stay alive. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then my second tool, which is, you know, a little bit cliche and definitely comes up in tw the 12 step program is like being of service. Like it's the easiest, fastest path to get out of my own way, to get out of my own head. Um, and it, it really applies to like my mental health as well as like my life as a writer. And I think one way that we can be of service is building community. I think that's something that I've tried to do with my advice column. It's not, you know, it's not like that's not my big money maker. I mean, I have a really large readership, but it's not, I'm not like earning a lot of money off of it. It's really about being of service to other people and about building a community. And, um, you know, so whether it's that you're going to volunteer in some sort of direct way or be of community in whatever communities you belong to, I think that's a fantastic tool. Um, there's no like faster route to, to getting out of your own way. Mm, agreed. I agree more. Yeah, absolutely. I signed up for your newsletter, Erin, and, oh, and I'm excited <laughs> to read your column. So yeah, there's so many and you've been doing that for about 10 years. Yeah, it started on my That's old awesome. blog spot blog and then um, it moved to Ravishly for how many years? Five years. And then I just, I, I left my role at Ravishly and now I'm just doing the, um, the advice column back on my own website. Mm -hmm. People can check that out for sure. Use that as a tool as well. I did this morning. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I'm going to read this one about relationships. <laughs> it spoke to me. What's your third thing? My third thing is something that we kind of already talked about is getting back to basics. So like even with, you know, more than 17 years of recovery, I, I am not immune to like feeling overwhelmed by life. And this again, like during the beginning of the pandemic, I really felt like anxiety and sort of despair, like I hadn't felt in a very long time. And I 
return to like what I call self-care in a crisis, <laughs> which is getting back to very basic things. So like I go through a literal, literal checklist for myself, like when was the last time that I drank water? Okay, drink a glass of water, <laughs> eat something, get outside, take, a, take some deep breaths. I am somebody who, when I'm stressed out, I hold breath which is really bad. <laughs> it's not good for you. I tend to hold my breath when I'm stressed, like to the point that I have like made myself start hyperventilating, not because I was going, <gasps> but because I just literally stopped breathing. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, you know, in addition to that, I think like writing these things down on a checklist, because checklists are big, like sort of basic self-care for me. What we talked about at the top of this about making your bed, like I, when I'm super stressed, I go back to like a to-do list that starts with get up at, you know, whatever time I plan on getting up, get up at 8 a.m., which is a joke because my three-year-old gets me up at five, but <laughs> get up at 8 a.m., you know, brush your teeth, make your bed, have a glass of water, then have coffee. I mean, I really go through the most basic ac activities because there is something about checking <laughs> those items off of a to-do to list that activates that reward center of your brain. It's like what we talked about before, like somebody giving you a gold star. Well, you're giving yourself a gold star, like, oh, you can check that off your list. And it sounds like cheesy or simple or whatever, but it works. It really, it, it works really well for me. And I know that it works for other people. Yeah, that's me. That's what I have to do. And I, I love a list. I love a list. Yeah. I mean, we need all the boosts we can get. So if I can boost right. my, that reward center of my brain by like checking something off my list, <laughs> I'm going to do it. Well, I also have for you ladies, you can, I'll virtually give them to you, but in my desk drawer, I have a whole, like, I must have like 500 gold stars on this little sticker thing. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's, like a, it's like a little roll that you can pull out from a little box. And I put them on my journal sometimes, or I'll put them on my to-do list. And I'll just, I've learned um, from a woman in the room, she gave me a sheet of gold stars one day. Mm -hmm. And she said, um, she said, uh, now you can give them to yourself. Yeah. Cause she'd heard a share that I'd shared and I just started crying. Cause you know, I was like, Oh, she saw me and yeah. um, it made sense. It made sense. So I totally get that. Mm. I get that. Oh, Aaron, this was so lovely. Thank you for it taking was. time to chat with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. It flew by. <laughs> I know all of a sudden, <laughs> but share with people how they can find you and, um, how to, how to get in touch with you with your newsletter. Can you share that with them? Our sure. Listeners? So basically everything about me is on my website, which is erincar.com, E-R-I-N-K-H-A-R. Um, you can find my Ask Aaron column there, links to all of my social media. I'm Aaron Carr on all social media. You can sign up for my newsletter, which will also get you, I made this little like self-care guide, which is some of the stuff we talked about that's like a little PDF downloadable. You, there's even little checklists that you can print out. <laughs> and and yeah, I, I, everything about like any sort of upcoming virtual appearances or anything can be found there. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you, Erin. This is an absolute pleasure. And I'm sure our listeners are going to love listening to you and about your, pro your story and about your process. Thank you so much. Thank you, Erin. Bye. Bye. The Unruffled Podcast was created and produced by Sandra Primo and Tammy Salas. Our show is edited and mixed by Steve Hecht. Original music composed and performed by Caitlin Schumacher. Original artwork created by Tammy with the help of graphic designers, 
Chris Aguirre and Amy Lanier. Thanks for listening.